Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please go over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd appreciate it very much. For now, here we go. Part two with fish ecologist Jean-Paul LeBlanc. Enjoy, everybody. And you find, like we talked about earlier, with the, the kind of uh, there's no ideal habitat. Like um, it's just kind of like depending on the on the location. Um, do you find that uh, the growth uh, the growth rates um, differ in, in these lo- locations? Uh, it, yeah, it kind of depends more so on the uh, the temperature. That'd probably be the biggest thing. Enough food and warm enough temperatures and. Uh, uh, High levels of oxygen in the water are like the uh, the main things to let them uh, to grow and grow faster. So you do see some uh, latitudinal differences uh, throughout their range. But if you take um, muskies from, say, uh, uh, up north Ontario, from the Midwestern, and then some play from the Midwest, sorry, and someplace else that's kind of intermediate, and you grow them in the same conditions, they all grow about the same at the same rate. So the fish are they all respond very similarly it's just a lot of it's the environmental conditions that change their uh their growth uh, traject- trajectory and pattern okay interesting i think frank wow. we, we had a discussion about in one of our one of our podcasts about the growth rates in in in, in the southern states and how they're much higher because of the warmer temperatures yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, geez, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, they, they talked about the growth uh, growth season being uh, longer, right? And so we get bigger fish at an earlier age because just be, by virtue of the fact that the fish are actively feeding more, right? Yeah. But then you probably also see that like the ultimate size of the fish is also a little bit smaller in the southern range than in the northern range. Yeah, yeah I think that's definitely consensus. Yeah, yeah, and I think that has to do because there is a. Uh, a shorter growing season that the fish up north, they just live a little bit longer and they can get to that little bit larger size because they aren't, uh, their metabolism isn't uh, churning as uh, fast because they have a reprieve during the cooler months, like during the fall and winter. Yeah. And I think that's why Canadian musky waters are so sought after. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Uh, the fish are, are special up here. The waters, if you're willing to travel, and you're used to fishing places like uh, you know uh, in you know Green Bay in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota, where you're you're touching knees with the guy in the boat next to you. Um, you know it's an attractive fishery up here, and that's why we have some of the best musky lakes, if not you know the best best musky lakes in the world, and uh, we're happy for it. So um, let me ask if just because. Like what I read, it was you know pretty bleak with what's happening in the St. Lawrence and in Georgian Bay. Uh, I don't know if those are happening. The same sort of epidemics are happening in the Northern Lakes, Eagle Lake, Laxul, Lake of the Woods. I'm not sure. But what um, – maybe that's part A of my question, but part B is definitely, JP, what can the average angler do to influence public office to pay more attention to this crisis? Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a tough one because muskies are charismatic species, so they get that attention. We actually use muskies as uh, a species to uh, gain uh, public interest and, uh, by extension, some public support through funding in our research program. But when it comes to, like, policymakers, it's, I guess there are two ways to go about it. Um, one is if you have a organization that or a group of uh, uh, 
group of people that are well organized, you have a better chance at influencing uh, policymakers because you can send a uh, a simple cohesive message to them consistently and have your memberships like send letters or call to the public official to uh, to lobby them that way. Um, that's like the a direct way, but then. I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. A lot of times you just have to try and, uh, try and get organized or try and develop the relationship with uh, some of the researchers because they have a, uh, more sway with like the local managers. Like mm. we interact with uh, the New York state department of, uh, uh, environmental conservation and with the U S fish and wildlife service in our region. And a lot of what, uh, the research we do and a lot of the work that we do influences how, the uh, say um, bag limits or size limits are implemented for certain species. Like uh, there's a we had a meeting between the uh, the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and DEC uh, a couple years ago, and we were talking about trying to protect northern pike and try and increase their size limit so that uh, fewer smaller fish could be kept. And we actually negotiated that. We threw the data around and. Eventually, both sides of the border agreed that, yeah, we're going to link up our uh, fishing regulations and implement this management strategy to try and uh, promote northern pike for that uh, part. Um, Where we're from, it's really hard to do anything besides um, strictly uh, protecting habitat that's important. Because muskies, at least in the St. Lawrence and in uh, uh, some of the other areas like Lake of the Woods, uh, Georgian Bay, you have to be, you have to catch a 54 inch muskie before you can legally keep it. So the minimum size limit is 54 inches and odds are you aren't going to be catching too many fish of that size. So essentially it's like a strictly catch and release fishery. And we've had a lot of buy-in with, uh, anglers with, uh, their catch and release philosophy. So in Ontario, less than 1% of all harvestable fish, fish, that exceed the minimum size limit are actually kept. So I think that was probably one of the biggest uh, buy-ins that the uh, muskie anglers uh, uh, <clears throat> embraced and uh, have applied. And they've been absolutely fantastic with uh, that philosophy to try and uh, sustain the population. It's better to take a picture and uh, get a replica made than to keep the fish. And Does we, what's that? Does it have any more sort of gravitas that this is an apex predator? And, and I'm not a scientist, but do, does, it, does the impact of an apex predator, is it more significant on the ecosystem as a whole than, say, a fish that is not an apex predator? In other words, is there more, is there more sort of lobbying power behind saying, look, this is a, an apex predator in, in, a, in a freshwater you know, water system uh, we need to pay attention to this because it's an apex predator, or does that does that not matter? Are all fish uh, as as important as, uh, to this system? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I know I know exactly what you're trying to say. So, like you're describing, like this is a it's 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 a very sound uh, ecological uh, 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 principle. It's like a, it's like a top down effect in structuring the uh, fish community. Right, your top predator that regulates the population of fish below it, in turn, the fish below it are regulated, and there's like a cascading effect downward. But there's also the bottom-up effect. So yeah. you kind of have these two competing hypotheses, and what's more important, the base of the food chain or the top predator? But mm. because top predators are the top predators, they, uh, 
they're often used as what's known as like an umbrella species or an indicator species. So because if you try and protect everything that's associated with the top predator, they normally need more types of uh, specialized uh, resources, whether it be food and habitat, that if you try and protect everything that's associated with uh, the apex predator, all these other species underneath it are also protected. And it's kind of the same principle as like an indicator species as well. So yeah, there is, there is a real good argument to say that we have this top predator. If we protect this top predator, we're going to know that everything below it must be doing okay because the top predator is still there. So that's kind of the, uh, the rationale. But yeah, that's definitely a good point. It's a good, it's a good argument to make, at least. Cool. Chris, what do you think? Oh, I totally, totally agree. It's, uh, I mean, like one thing, if you've been dealing with musky anglers, what you will, what you, you probably know already that they tend to be really uh, amazing stewards of the environment and take it very seriously, the conservation of the species, protecting the habitat and, and uh, doing the best uh, kind of uh, management practices they can to have a positive effect on the species. So no, no, um, they've been, I, yeah. Musky anglers are probably some of the best in terms of uh, stewards of the, the resource whether it's just musky or even like every other uh, aspect of uh, the fishery. I've been very impressed by musky anglers. So, so ba- based on what Frank was mentioning earlier, like what, what is, what exactly is the most effective type of support from like a, um, an angling community? Is, is it just being a steward of the environment or is it like donating to more studies um, uh, or as Frank mentioned, lobbying your, your, your local politicians? I mean, what, what's the most effective thing that translates to protecting the fish? Uh, I think uh, being a, an ambassador for the resource, like realizing that it's just, it's just not one fish, but it's the, the fish that supports the fishery. So the, everything that supports the muscalunge is just as important to the muscalunge if you want to keep fishing for muscalunge, if that makes sense. So, like, that's kind of, like, uh, a perspective. One thing that's happened with uh, Muskies Canada, at least some of the chapters, especially along uh, the St. Lawrence, uh, Gadnaque would be a good example. Um, they, uh, they actually partner up with um, Parks Canada, and they actually uh, volunteer to go out and try and uh, survey for juvenile muskies and sane for them through an index uh, survey. And that's actually a huge help because you're volunteering uh, time and a lot of and and well people uh, power too so that's a uh, that's a big uh, big benefit if there are opportunities to do that um yeah i i'm always hesitant to say uh donate uh, money to uh uh research because you really have no idea where it's going to go and uh, how it's going to be applied per se unless you know the researcher and then if you're donating to say like a a, a someone who's working out of a university then odds are part of that donation is going to be siphoned off and be used for administrative purposes at the university mm-hmm. too. So not all the money goes to the uh, intended uh, source. So that's always a little bit of an issue. But yeah, I'd say lobbying and maybe if you get a chance, uh, uh, seeing if uh, there's an opportunity to go out and uh, give somebody a hand that's uh, trying to study and protect the fish. Vol- volunteer your time has a big impact. That's that's the message yeah, there. So. Yeah. yeah, especially because a lot of times uh, researchers they uh, they don't have the uh, like insight knowledge that musky anglers would have. And if it wasn't for like relationships that I developed with some of the musky anglers, then I wouldn't have been as successful in my PhD uh, 
without a doubt. Um, going back to uh, Jerry, this is another interesting story. <clears throat> we were doing telemetry on uh, muscalunge in, in this big basin. And <clears throat> this one muskie, it was a 47-inch 40, female, uh, had been sitting at the exact same location at about 40 feet uh, depth for about three days straight. And I was concerned because I thought the fish had died and was just hung up on this ledge. It was sitting at 40 feet, but it was a 70-foot hole that it was kind of sitting uh, next to. So I thought the fish was dead. And I go and I tell Jerry, because I'm upset, because I killed one of his muskies. And uh, he, he looks up. He's like, ah, don't worry about it. It's going to be a new moon. A fish will be gone by tomorrow. <laughs> and the next day go out tracking the fish. The fish had moved up to like 10 feet of water and it was like a half kilometer away from where it was. Wow. Wicked. There you go. If you think the lunar... Yeah, that basically uh, turned a switch being like, I got to listen to these guys. That is such a... That's just so neat to... I mean, we, we're talking about symbiotic relationships where the fish is concerned and you're talking about, you know, musk musky English make you better at your job and without guys like you JP there are no guys like us so that's uh that's a really cool message and that really that is. term you use JP of uh like flipping or turning a switch that's something that we encounter all the time as musky anglers yeah there's just something happens when that lunar when that major hits and the con- like the climate the climate and the kind of the context of where you're fishing is just perfect and a switch turns on and then like it's like it's you can't explain what just happened other than, you know, you're in a major or something. But the fish is behaving completely differently. Um, and you have this wild kind of 15 minutes or, or one hour of, of action where, you know, for the last three days you hadn't seen anything. So these switches come on and off in this in this sport. And it's really amazing to see. Yeah. Yeah, and we feel it too, Chris. Remember on Eagle that one day? I, I know you know what you I'm talking feel about. It. When You're that. right. There's like something in the air. You sometimes you can feel it. Yeah, and you go from you know you go from like those low lows where it's like we're never going to catch. We're not. But when you're in the you're in the heat of a, a switch turned on, it's like you're grabbing that rod. You just know something's coming. Like you just know it, and it does right. And uh, those are the moments we live for. Um, yeah, I've got a question about Georgian Bay. Chris, what uh, what do you what do you got? I mean, do you want me to ask? Yeah, continue. Or? I continue. I'm gonna. I, I'll follow up after that with something else. So go ahead. I, I want to ask a fisherman's question because I I've been thinking about this since I saw this in the study, uh, JP, in one of the studies that was about reproduction on Georgian Bay. Talked specifically about the lack of muskie in the southeastern part of Georgian Bay, and there really wasn't um, any sort of consensus as to why that's the case i I don't know quite why i'm going to ask you that that because i read your findings but um, maybe you could elaborate on that because you know i've got i've got a a cousin of mine that's got a place uh you know on the south end they're like well there's no muskie here i'm like oh it's so frustrating and then you go up into the the the, you know the east the northeast and some of the most fertile muskie grounds i mean why why like, it's not like that point is too far south. We're catching fish in the Niagara River. We're catching fish in Kentucky, for crying out loud. What's going on with the southeastern part of Georgian Bay that makes it so, makes it so inhospitable for muskies? Yeah, I, that's, that's a tough question to answer because southeastern Georgian Bay has seen the most um, uh, uh, development in terms of people moving mm-hmm. into the area and altering the, uh, the, the shoreline. Um, 
like even though people say Georgian Bay is almost pristine, like the southeast corner of it isn't necessarily as good as the the rest of it. It's also right in the middle of a very fertile uh, uh, agricultural landscape, so there's a lot more nutrient inputs to that area, so that could be affecting it. Um, when I was working there, we uh, we caught decent numbers of adults. I think we uh, ended up catching over a few year period something like forty adults. And tagging them with a radio transmitter, it was mostly the juveniles that we couldn't catch. Uh, it was this only was the juveniles. Where? Well, I mean, where exactly are we talking about? We're talking so, about. I'm talking about Severn Sound. Okay. Are you talking more so like uh, Owen Sound? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think so. And and uh, I mean, just typically, we don't see anglers, you know, in in Owen Sound or um, uh, just basically in the southeastern part the more south you get the less fish yeah, you know i would agree with that yeah yeah so yeah, I, I'm, not I, really, I, I'm not really cer- certain why it could just be a degradation of the spawning habitat and the population's been wiped out also these fish have been overfished and uh, harvested excessively historically so mm-hmm. populations are artificially uh low because of yeah. that to begin with so fair enough yeah. so so jp is is the like what is the goal is it to have a, a self-sustaining population where you don't have to um you don't have to stock you just manage the existing habitats and the existing kind of uh, um uh, bodies of water musky exist and 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 the overall goal is that they have healthy self-sustaining populations or you think over time you're just going to continue stocking some of these lakes um or or, or raising musky and, and and introducing them into new waters uh, introducing them into new waters is always uh, precarious. So that's yeah. something that what we try and do if ever we're going to do something like that. Um, Lake Simcoe in Ontario is a really good example of this. Yeah. Um, the muskie population crashed there, and they're trying to uh, reestablish a muskie population. There are some adults in there. They aren't too sure how they got there, but uh, mm-hmm. the population just doesn't it, it doesn't produce naturally. And they you have to find a uh, genetic strain of the fish that will be compatible to that environment. So they uh, had historic samples of muskies from um, Lake Simcoe. And when you ran the uh, sequence, you could figure out uh, which like subpopulation of muskellunge within the surrounding area. Cause there's quite a few. Um, you have like the Kawartha lakes uh, strains, which are inland lakes uh, Northeast of uh, Toronto, uh, I guess east of Barrie. And then you have Georgian Bay that kind of come through the uh, Trent Severn sometimes. And uh, they found that the Georgian Bay fish were more closely related to the Lake Simcoe fish. So they decided they were going to use Lake Simcoe fish for, sorry, uh, Georgian Bay fish for the uh, broodstock. So they were trying to match up the genetics. Like if you took a, a Great Lakes fish and try and introduce it to uh, someplace in the Midwest, it probably wouldn't do very well. You probably end up with stunted growth. And they have done, uh, there's historic stocking that they did back in like the 50s that completely wrecked a trophy muskie uh, fishery because all the fish ended up becoming stunted and tiny. And that was the best they could do. And they're just now starting to uh, uh, dilute out those genetics and getting the fish back to uh, uh, historical sizes in that particular water body. That was very similar to trying to transplant a native tree. And if you're bringing it to a location that, that has a completely different soil structure or whatnot, it's, 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 it's uh, chances of, of, of surviving are, are, are much lower. 
So yeah, yeah, you're trying to match the kind of environment that you've taken it from. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it, you're genetically evaluating that to find the strain because you don't have any existing population to look at. Yeah, that's yeah. The best thing you have are like uh, old uh, old mounts is what they typically use to get like historic genetic information. Oh, like an old like a taxiderm uh, like uh, oh interesting you can pull you can pull a scale off that and still still analyze it uh, it's difficult but I think they can interesting mm. yeah really cool yeah because we, we have scales that are probably like 30 40 years old and you can still get genetics out of them too so interesting really cool um okay so i think that kind of just led into the one of my last questions was like how do you see the 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 overall health of this species over the next you know 10 years or 20 years given the continued pressure from uh whether it be this disease whether it be um the degradation of habitats or angling pressure um do you see it as as a viable healthy species that will will be you know uh you know, in your, and how would you categorize it in terms of like a, um, a healthy species that's not endangered or there, it's not at risk, or you think, you think there's going to be uh, more uh, becoming more problematic over time? Yeah. I, th- I think the population for the most part in most regions that are like naturally sustaining, they'll probably end up doing just fine as long as, um, the environment isn't uh, degraded. So like, that's kind of the uh, important thing to remember. Uh, muskies are very, very sensitive, especially during uh, their first uh, year or two. So that's really a good indication. If you can't find juveniles, then you're going to have a problem long-term and you have to try and figure something out. Um, in terms of like uh, trying to uh, get a population to a certain level, that's kind of a, uh, like a management perspective. Um, in the St. Lawrence River, uh, adult catch rates for muskies were, uh, the target was one fish every 10 hours of angling. That was kind of the historic benchmark that, uh, was decided on. And it was right around the mid two thousands. Everything seemed to be looking really, really good. And then the disease came in and the population crashed. And now we're trying to get the population to, uh, get back to that uh, one fish for every 10 hours of angling uh, uh, benchmark. And to do that, we're, uh, we're doing an, an, an experiment with uh, muskies. So the reason why I've raised muskies, or we are raising muskies, is because we're testing this uh, spawning site fidelity behavior. And at the same time, we're trying to enhance the muskie population. So we're growing all these fish out to about six uh, inches. And each fish gets a unique uh, uh, passive integrated pit tag so it has a unique code in each of these tags so we put this tag inside the uh the fall fingerling and then we stock them in very in specific bays and we know exactly what fish was stocked in what bay so when these fish come back as adults in like four to seven years and we if we catch them in our index uh, adult spawning net we'll be able to know if our fish have recruited into the population and if they're spawning in the same areas that we uh, stocked them originally so that's one of the ways we're trying to enhance the St. Lawrence River population. So we're doing this targeted stocking for probably four or five years and hope that maybe one or two percent of the fish that we stock and maybe add maybe four or five hundred adults to the population over the span of about a decade. And then hopefully that 
leads to uh, a higher catch rate. Um, but like, that's just kind of like a little intervention. I think for in the long term, muskies will do fairly well, especially if anglers really adopt the catch and release uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, there really isn't any reason why muskies shouldn't sustain themselves unless there's like uh, catastrophic uh, climatic changes that happen and uh, everything goes to hell mm. with uh, all the water bodies. <laughs> but you really can't predict that. So. No, you can't. <laughs> Clearly, you can't. <laughs> oh, boy. I, believe, I believe we're all working from home right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or some of us not even working. So. <laughs> you know what? It's, uh, it's good to step outside of uh, life and all the, the trials and tribulations and, and just get on the microphone, get a guy like John Paul and just you know, bring all sorts of data and, and super interesting perspective uh, to, to what happens under the water, the stuff that we don't see and, and don't understand that's happening. This is just really, it's really fascinating stuff, John Paul. I, I mean, thank you so much for, for coming on. It's, it's been a great talk. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, JP, I mean, like, you know, you think muskie podcast, you probably think, uh, you know, off the top of your head, a couple guys want to just talk about how to catch muskie, but we, we started out with this podcast to really like interview and talk to all aspects of the, of the species and includes guys like you, which knows so much, uh, you know, scientific data about the fish. And I think that just helps us gain a better understanding of what we're, you know, what, what our passion is and it helps educate us and the listeners. So I think it's really valuable to have people like people like you on and, and maybe some of your colleagues and we had Sarah on and she was a great, great guest as well. And, and that's kind of a bit of a segue to your, to your, all of the documents you sent us. Uh, would you, would you be okay with us maybe uh, posting some of that on our social media so people can have a read and, and, and understand some of the, like, there, there's a lot of information here that we didn't, we touched on, but there's a lot of like real details in here that people might find very interesting. Yeah, I think all those papers are, you can uh, Google them in Google Scholar and you can get the PDF. So I guess at that point, you're pretty much free to uh, use them however you like. So Yeah, yeah great. But you've, you, you've kind of like uh, cherry picked a few here that are really good. So if you don't mind, we can, we can put them up and let people have a read. Yeah, definitely. Hey, do you guys, uh, we just finished the study. It's not with muskies, but it's uh, with northern pike. And uh, hey, here's a question for you. How fast do you think a completely excised or uh, clipped fin will regrow on a uh, really small northern pike? How long do you think it would take for the fin to completely regenerate so you wouldn't know that it was clipped in the first place? It's the whole life of the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go the other way a month. Month? It took, we just did this experiment because we've been uh, fin clipping uh, like three-inch northern pikes when they're uh, emigrating from uh, – their spawning habitat and we haven't been able to recapture any of them so we wanted to see how fast their fin would uh, regrow and if you put them in ideal conditions it takes less than 100 days for wow. a fin to completely regenerate so you look at the fish and there's no way you could tell that it was it was missing <laughs> a fin three months earlier oh. incredible uh, that must, incredible. Does, that, does that make it more challenging to study them yeah it does so yeah. now we have to figure out a different way to uh, tag them but they were doing this with muskies uh, back in the day when they were stalking them. Um, yeah. They would uh, they would wait though until the fish was uh, uh, well. It would be about September, so the fish would be I don't know five six months old, 
And when they clipped the fin, it would take up to 600 days for the fin to completely regrow. But if you take a fish that's like two months younger and you clip the fin, it grows back in a matter of 100 days. Wicked. So, I mean, that's how fast these fish grow when they're young. So cool. Just, just okay. Uh, yeah, I gotta ask. This, this, like a quick question about, about about when they're growing and are, are the are the fingerlings or the yearlings are they are they ambush predators at that age? Are the muskies? Oh, like, they're ambush predators right from the very beginning. Right from the beginning, yeah. So what what are they feeding on at, at a young age? Like benthic organisms? Uh, sometimes. Okay, it's actually kind of actually that's that's a really good insight. So um, when they're first hatched. Um, so they hatch, and when they hatch, they remain dormant because they have the yolk sac, and they absorb the yolk sac. And then they'll swim up to the surface, take a gulp of air, and uh, fill their air bladder, and then they become uh, uh, neutrally buoyant, so they can go anywhere in the water column. So at that point, once they've like they've uh, right, well, yeah, they've right the ship, as it were, they start feeding on little bits of plankton until they reach about well. About three quarters of an inch to an inch and a quarter, and then they'll start feeding on uh, fish that are really, really small, and then other insects. Um, the types of fish that they like to eat are um, uh, like little minnows, things that are soft-bodied and uh, have uh, uh, soft fins. Um, but uh, there was a study. Uh, well, my current boss, uh, Dr. Farrell, he uh, one of his former students. Well, I did a study on the um, uh, gut contents of juvenile muskies, and they found that a large percentage of their diet were actually uh, darters, which are fish that live uh, on the substrate. And uh, they've actually been replaced by round gobies now, but like uh, bottom fish or benthic fish were a big part of the uh, juvenile muskies diet for whatever reason. And we think of them more as a, uh, uh, an upper water column hunting fish. But it looks like they target a lot of fish that are towards the bottom of the substrate. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, they'll eat basically really, anything really and everything you give them. Wow. When they're older, too, I think they focus on, on substrate and, and substrate feeding, too, from what I understand. So maybe that's just a cycle of life thing, right? Oh, maybe. So a lot of the behaviors you mentioned in our, what's that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'll follow up with it after you're done. I was just going to say a lot of the behaviors you see an adult uh, perform, the juveniles are also doing that. So like they, this is a, that's an innate uh, behavior. They don't learn it. They just know how to do it. And so when we're, uh, when we're growing the muskies, um, we start them off on a, a brine shrimp or sea monkeys until they get to a certain size and then we move them over to a, a dry food pellet. And then once we get ready to uh, stock them for the last, I don't know, month or three weeks, we, uh, we start to give them minnows. So they figure out how to handle fish. But as soon as we add the minnows to the tank, all the muskies know exactly what they're doing and they'll hit the minnows immediately and just uh, take them down head first. Like it's not a problem. So these fish just got, know how to do uh, that <laughs> uh i could probably try and uh find it, it's not going to be great it's gonna be real uh real short but yeah i think i could find a couple things there's there's actually two things i would love to see like that would be one of them and and a nice like a a, a picture 
of one of those juveniles you were talking about with like the, 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 the real vibrant color patterns, that would be, that would be great to see from your perspective, something up close like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was going to, I was going to follow up with, uh, your colleague. It's Daniel. Yeah. Dan Weller. Or, or, yeah. Dan Weller. And, and you mentioned when we were talking in the emails that, that he has a, a kind of another area of, of focus with Muskie and, and, uh, and you guys, uh, you obviously must collaborate your research. Uh, does, so where, where does Daniel focus on? Dan, he's, uh, he worked on, um, He's more of a spatial ecologist, we'll say. He's really good at uh, geographic information systems, uh, GIS. And uh, mm-hmm. we did the telemetry work, and uh, he took all of that, and he put together, um, he, he kind of modeled the uh, uh, spawning behavior of uh, muscalunge, excuse me, in Georgian Bay. So looking at residency time, the amount of t- space that the fish moved, and then he looked at that in uh, three different locations of Georgian Bay and all the fish kind of did the same thing. So he has a pretty good idea of like where the fish are going when they go during that uh, first, uh, during the spawning period. Um, it's really hard to track fish in Georgian Bay during the uh, summer after the spawning period because the fish disperse and Georgian Bay is so large. Like we spent countless mm-hmm. days boating around open Georgian Bay trying to find our fish and we may have gotten like uh, two or three really weak signals on a couple of occasions. And that was about it. Everything was only during all of our acquisitions of the fish through telemetry was uh, during the spawning season. Well, we'll try to continue this, uh, this discussion with Dan at some point as well, because you mentioned that in your, in your, in your, your email that he'd be a good guy to talk to as well. So um, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, I think, uh, Frank, I, I'm not sure if there's anything else uh, you want to cover. I think we we, we, we we had a good discussion today. Um, what do you think? I'm good. No, I'm good. I think that's great. That was uh, hit every point I wanted to. Learned a, a ton, and uh, that yeah. was awesome. So, uh, right, JP, then. I mean, if you if you have if you have any uh, favorite kind of musky stories that we we kind of love to hear and ha- have our guests talk about. Um, if you can just shoot one at us, I know you're not, uh, you're not an angler, but you are handling a lot of muskies. So you must have some stories that would be kind of a, of interest to us. Well, I, I just thought of another story about, uh, Dan and I, when we were, uh, in Georgian Bay, we were doing some spring angling and we we're actually targeting uh muskies. We we're trying to see if we could figure out where they were spawning. We didn't have nets at the time. So we were just out fishing. We weren't expecting to catch anything, but there's three of us in a little, uh, 14 foot Lund just kind of perusing the near shore and uh, Dan hooked into a uh, hooked into, Oh, it was probably about a 43 inch muskie, a male muskie. And uh, as soon as he hooked into it, we just kind of played it off as maybe a big bass, but then we saw the uh, it's flank when it got close to the surface. And then I just started panicking in the boat because we didn't have really uh, <laughs> much room or anything. So I'm looking for whatever we need to try and land the fish, whether it be the bass net we had or anything like that. And I'm just literally just, walking around in circles trying to figure out where I'm going to go in the boat. It was just, uh, it was chaos. That was absolutely hilarious to our, uh, our new technician that was joining us for the first time that day. And, uh, George, just, imagine, so, just uh, imagine if that was a 50, 50 incher. Oh my God. It would have taken the <laughs> boat down. It was amazing. 
Yeah, you would. You but would yeah, have... it's yeah, it's 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 always just spectacular to see a muskie, whether it's your you angle it or you see it in the net. When you're uh, when we're pulling some of our nets, um, the muskies they'll uh, they tend to sit at the surface of the in the net, so like towards the water surface. But when you approach and you start working the net, all of a sudden you could be in the net, then all of a sudden this muskie, like a fifty incher, will just kind of slowly surface and just be staring at you as you're trying to uh, pull other fish out of the net. So it's just hiding in there, and all of a sudden it scares the crap out of you. Oh but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, they're just spectacular fish. And, and we've we hear I mean, we've I've seen it myself. I I, I saw it um when I was fishing up north on one of my trips with some of my other buddies, but uh you know, some guys will leave their 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 bait over the side of the boat while they toil and, and fix something in the boat or whatever, and their their bait is either skimming the surface just above it or kinda in the water. And you look over and you see a giant fish just sort of sitting there going like, you know, are you going to do something with this? <laughs> yeah. You know, we, hey, Chris, we've heard tons of stories like that. And that's, that's, that's just part of it all. Part of the, well, all I think, of us I think the, the whole con, like that whole idea of locking eyes with the fish. I've, I've been there, um, you know, with, with a, a very, very, one of the largest muskie I've ever seen, just locking eyes with it. And you have that kind of, just kind of, uh, like instant but but very quick connection where it's you, you kind of think that you you had you know you had a connection with the fish and it's looking at you and you're looking at 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 her and and then it just kind of like you know doesn't panic and just you know um slowly swims away which is not the, it's not the pattern of normal fish you know i used to fish for trout a lot i mean you you, you can spook a trout just you know so, so easily and but these fish kind of just look at you when they get to a certain size and and it's like they understand what's going on and it's, it's something i know the fish you're talking about chris i yeah. know the fish yeah. you're talking about yeah, yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that's interesting because i was fishing in the kawartha lakes just for bass and there was a musky angler probably about i don't know 200 feet uh, behind us and um, I'm just fishing away off the side of the a boat, and all of a sudden, this 40-inch muskie just starts cruising at the surface right next to the boat, not paying any attention to me, and just kind of going on its way. It was, <laughs> I freaked out and started casting at it, but yeah, nothing happened from it. <laughs> well, we've, we've seen them, we've seen them do- doggy paddle on the surface and, and swim literally right by our boat with their head and shoulders out of the water. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, I've seen that too. I've seen that with our uh, younger fish. What, what do you think is going on there, John? Paul, I've heard some people say that uh, they maybe just had a, a meal with a fish that's got a big bladder, big air bladder. But I, I remember sitting in the boat with my buddy Attila going, what the hell is that? And, you know, it's a dead fish. No, it's coming closer. And then, then you see the movement and then you see what it is. And then the second you go to grab the net, of course, the thing's like, you know, piss off and it takes off because it they're one step ahead of you half the time, you know? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, that could be a couple. It could be what you just mentioned, but like I've also come across uh, some muskies that uh, uh, have an inflated uh, swim bladder themselves, and they have trouble riding themselves. But they still have the uh, wherewithal if you get close enough to them to try and swim down and away. But if you give it enough time, they'll float back up to the surface. So uh, how does a fish like that even grow? I mean, okay. So I got a story for you guys. So when we, we raised fish last year uh, and we had one fish, one muskie, it grew to be, I don't know, like five or six inches in length, but it had a messed up swim bladder. Um, it couldn't uh, stay submerged. So every time it would swim down, 
uh, it'd be negative, uh, well, positively buoyant, and it would just come up to the surface. So it was constantly chilling at the surface. No matter what it tried to do, it couldn't stay below the water surface. But it wasn't on its side. It was perfectly stable. Like the swim bladder was persistently inflated, but perfectly balanced. So the fish was always upright. And every time it tried to swim down when it was startled, it would give up and then it would just float back up like any type of balloon. It was the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. We ended up donating. Uh, I was just going to say like, what's, what's even more interesting is, is, is thinking, is that, is that something that's doing on purpose or there's no function there? This fish had no control over it whatsoever. It was a developmental defect. Okay. I don't know when it, when it like filled up his swim bladder, it took too much of a gulp at the beginning, but of air, but I don't know. We ended up donating the fish to uh, an aquarium that was being run by the uh, New York uh, DEC. Because if we stocked it, it was either going to be picked off by a bird or get stuck in the ice. Right. Ah, so. yeah. <laughs> well, JP, I, I want to thank you, uh, uh, you know, for taking the time out with us. Uh, you spent a good hour with us now. I really appreciate it. And um, just another contact that we have now with, with, with yourself, and we hope to keep the relationship going. Um, really appreciate it. Frank, I don't know if you have any um, thoughts you want to you want to say now. No, just, you know what, everybody hang in there. And uh, the season's far away still, but not that far away. And uh, hopefully we can get in our fishing boats and, uh, you know, as life creeps back and gets more normal and we can just get on the water and just do our thing. I think that's all we're all sort of waiting for right now. And I'm sure it's going to come. It just, uh, the days seem like, uh, you know, they're 10 days each to one day right now. Everyone's waiting for information, but like, uh, you know, we're tough and we're patient. We're musky anglers. So let's just do our thing and, uh, hit it hard when the opener comes. Cool. Thanks a lot, JP. Well, thank you very much, Chris and Frank. Uh, it was a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, uh, Talk to you guys JP, around the town, I guess. When we uh, when we uh, release this, we'll send you a link. So um, oh, you have, you. yeah, and you can do as you please if you want to post it or if you want to share it. Uh, no problem. But we'll send you the link to the to the podcast, and uh, you'll have it uh, for yourself. All right. Well, appreciate that. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, guys. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. Signing out. All right. Au revoir. <laughs>